Good morning. Great to be here today. In case we have not had the opportunity to meet, though I think I might have taken the last few people that I haven't met today and met them. So, but my name is Josh, and it is a privilege to be with you today. Um, I am in town here for uh, the next, I guess, about nine days, and so I'll be uh, excited to be with you next Sunday as well. And uh, during the course of this week, um, I'd be happy to connect with you if you've got the time and the desire. If not, I won't be offended. Uh, we also will be on the pursuit of a, of a place to live this week. And so our, my prayer is, is that as I go back next uh, Monday evening, uh, that I have a place that we can start planning to move to. So if you would um, just keep that in prayer, I know that we would greatly appreciate that so very, very much. Um, but it's a great blessing to be with you guys today, and we're looking forward to landing permanently here in the LA area. Um, so this morning, I'm, I'm excited to share just um, a few thoughts with you, um, and I'm, I'm praying and hoping today that this will have um, hopefully an impact on how you perceive uh, your season of life and where you are at. And I'm just going to share a few thoughts today surrounding the idea of enduring difficult seasons in our lives. And I think that if you've lived for more than five minutes, you have probably endured at least some season in your life that has presented a challenge or a trial to you. Uh, but I want us to understand today, or I want us to walk away this morning with the understanding that we don't just have to survive these seasons in our lives. Um, um, although we may be going through a very challenging season even in this very moment. Uh, but my prayer and my hope this morning is that through this season that you may be going in, uh, into or maybe going through right now, uh, that God will use this season to cause a growth in you that will strengthen you, not only for this season right now, but also for what he might have uh, in your future. And so if you have your Bible or your Bible app this morning, uh, you can turn with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to read from chapter 1. Uh, and I'm just going to read, I'm going to read the first four verses and then we're going to skip down to verses 11 and 12. Uh, and uh, I'll just kind of jump right in after that. Uh, so 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 uh, begins, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Jumping down to verse 11, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, would you just join me in prayer? Lord, this morning we just come uh, humbly to your word, and we just pray today that we would hear what your spirit is saying. I pray, Lord God, that you would help me to effectively communicate what you have for us, that we would receive your word, Lord, and that you would do great things in our lives through this word. In Christ's name, amen. 
So I want to set a little background or a little kind of context to what we're looking at in this morning's passage. Um, this letter begins with three names, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And so this is a letter that is actually written by these gentlemen to a church in a city called Thessalonica, which was a very significant city in uh, the ancient world as well as it is today in modern Greece. Um, it was a port city, a lot of business, a lot of people, very multicultural as well. Uh, and along with multicultural cities, as you may know, there's a, a, a myriad of views and worldviews and religions that are kind of compiled there. Um, and so this is kind of the context and setting in which Paul is writing this letter. And he's writing it to this church that he had started. So Paul had started this church, got it going. And actually, we can read about the history of this church starting in Acts chapter 17, where we see that... Um, Paul is there, and uh, Paul is starting a church, and what he does is he does what he does in all the communities that he first enters. enters. When he enters into a new, new community or a new town, he primarily and first focuses his efforts towards the Jewish community. Uh, so Paul first starts his ministry in the synagogue in, in Thessalonica like he does in other cities. And he spends time, it says, not preaching, but really debating almost or trying to teach and convince these Jewish people that the Messiah has come. And so uh, he sits down and it says in Acts that he spends three weekends or three Sabbaths with these Jewish guys in the synagogue debating about Jesus and trying to convince them that the Messiah Jesus has come. And so, uh, but his, his impact in this community really isn't significant in the Jewish uh, population. And that's sometimes typical of Paul's ministry, but he has an impact in the Gentile community. So Paul feels like his primary calling is to Gentiles, to non-Jews, but he knows that the gospel goes to all people and it begins, as he might say, with the house of Israel. Uh, he even says in Romans chapter 1 where it says that the, the power of the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Not that it's more impactful to the Jewish people, but the gospel was first presented. Even Jesus in his ministry went very few times to Gentiles, but primarily to the Jewish people to present to them himself as their rescuer, as their savior, as their Messiah. And so Paul follows in the lead of Jesus and he begins with the Jewish people. And he has very limited success here with the Jewish people, but he has a great impact and begins the start of a new congregation of believers in Thessalonica. And so, um, but with this influence that he has, um, the Jewish leaders in the community are pretty unhappy with some of the Jewish people that actually are in inquisitive or curious about this Jesus and this Messiah. And so they complained to the governing authorities that Paul and his partner Silas were proclaiming this new king, Jesus. Now this is significant because you got to remember, let's move back in time. We're sitting in the time of the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, Caesar is not only the ruler, but he is viewed as king and God as well. So any kind of mention of anyone else to be a king or a ruler would be seen as treasonous. And so these Jewish leaders know this, and so they begin to provoke these other people to recognize that these guys are causing an insurrection. And so as a result of this conflict, Paul and Silas, they leave town. And it says in Acts that they go to this town called Berea, but eventually Paul sends Timothy back to this church in Thessalonica to essentially be their pastor, to take care of them, to help them. And, and Timothy spends some time doing ministry there, and he reports back to Paul of all the good things that are going on with this church, but also some of the questions and issues that they're facing. And so Paul begins to address these issues in these letters that he's writing, first in 1 Thessalonians, and, and it's believed that within about a month's time that he actually writes 2 Thessalonians, that some of the issues that he addressed in 1 Thessalonians really haven't satisfied 
unified the people, and there still is a bit of um, debate in what's going on there, and so he writes this second letter. And one of the main issues that he addresses is their theology concerning trials and persecution. This church in particular had begun to face quite a bit of persecution. And these Thessalonians, they thought that God was displeased with them because they were enduring the season of trials and persecution. Now, perhaps you have felt this way yourself, that when things go wrong or, or bad things happen to you, you feel like God might be punishing you. Or that he might be displeased with you, and that's why these things might be happening to you. And this principle or this uh, uh, philosophy is called the principle of retribution. And it's at the heart of almost every major religion. That if you displease the gods, that they will get you. Through floods, through famines, through fires, through diseases. And they are a result of the wrath of the gods. That if you don't appease the gods through acts of offering and sacrifice or good works, they will take it out on you. And it's amazing how many Christians have this same idea about God. Many believers think that God will reward people who do good, and he'll reward them with prosperity and health, but he will punish those who are doing sinful things, and, and they will suffer. And we learn this really, I mean, I think we can all identify with this. This is often how our parents raised us, right? You do good and you're rewarded. You do bad and you're punished. And so we take this way of thinking which I think is part of the human condition, and we take this way of thinking and we begin to apply it to our understanding of our faith and our relationship with God. Suffering is a sign that God is displeased with us, while prosperity is a sign that God is pleased with us. Now, there's an extreme form of this teaching within the church world. You may have heard of it. It's called the prosperity gospel. And they've taken this principle, and they've bathed it in the Bible, and they, they teach that if you have enough faith, God will reward you financially, physically, so you, that you won't even get sick, or if you are sick, that you'll be healed, and that spiritually you will thrive. But if you are sick, or, or if you're poor, and if you're suffering in any ways, it's because you don't have enough faith. Now, we may not be as extreme as some of these people in our views, but we all have thought that God must have been mad or displeased with us at some time in our lives. And most of the time, we connect it to something in our life that isn't going right. And that's exactly what the Thessalonians thought. They were in this season of persecution for their faith, and they believed it was because they had not pleased God, that God was not pleased with them. But the true biblical understanding is that God does not work that way. The truth is that our life can be pleasing to God and we can be going through the worst season of our life. Or the opposite is also true. We can be living a life that is displeasing to God, yet everything can be going right. You may have recognized this in others or even in your own life where you feel as though you're doing all the things that God wants you to do, but nothing is going right. You're losing your job, you're losing relationships, or maybe you're in a season uh, that you see other people that are living completely what we might call sinful lives, yet everything is going right for them. They're living where they want, they're driving the cars they want, they have all the relationships they want. Everything from the outside looks like everything is right. And even David, uh, remember King David from David and Goliath? He recognized this and saw this as part of his experience as well. In Psalm 73, verses 12 through 14, he wrote this. He said, this is what the wicked are like, 
always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands of innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. So he's like, all these sinful people are out there accumulating wealth and and accumulating everything. They're living life carefully and here I am trying to please God. And what do I get? New punishments every morning. These Thessalonian Christians were in a season of severe persecution and it had impacted the way that they had viewed God and their own faith. And so Paul, in this letter, one of the issues that he's addressing is specifically this, their misunderstanding, their bad theology about how God works. And what he does, I think, is brilliant at the very beginning. And you may kind of pass over this, but if you look at the very beginning of the passage that we read, how does Paul begin his writing? He goes, yeah, he introduces who's writing, and then he says in verse 2, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul understands the season in which they're living, this season of persecution and trials, and he begins by encouraging these Thessalonian believers. Grace and peace. Paul understands at the heart of what their greatest need is right now. It is the grace and the peace of God. What is grace? Grace is God's love given to us, not because we've earned it or deserved it or we've done all the right things, but because of who he is. He begins this letter by laying a foundation for shifting their focus back to understanding who God truly is and how he operates among his people. God is a God of grace. There isn't anything that you can do to earn more love from God. And there isn't anything that you or I can do that will repel or slow down God's love towards us. God's love is a constant towards people. It is grace that drives God's love. Not our works, not our actions, not our deeds. And as you can imagine, when you're going through a season of difficulty or trial or hardship, having peace is something that can sustain you as well. And it's not just a peace that, that comes from compromise or human efforts, but Paul is specifically talking about a peace that is given from God himself. A peace that he would write in other parts of, of his writings that surpasses all understanding. That in the midst of the most difficult season in your life, that you can walk with an assurance and a peace that's not based in your circumstance, but based in who God is. This peace allows them to understand that God will see them through this season that we're going through, that they're going through. And it's not because they're bad that they're facing trials or persecutions, and it's not because they've done wrong things or they haven't appeased God that they're going through trials. Paul lets them know that they are not a disappointment to himself or to God. And he actually thanks God in his letter at the beginning for their faithfulness. Did you notice that right there at the very beginning? He says, right? He says, we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. You know, if everything went perfectly in our lives, we wouldn't really need God. Think about that just for a second. If everything went smoothly the way that we wanted it or the way that we envisioned it, the way that we hoped for, there would be no need for us to lean into God. 
But it's in the midst of trials, it's in the midst of even persecution, that our faith is strengthened. And this is the truth that Paul is trying to draw out from uh, the situation that this church is enduring right now. God hasn't brought these trials or these persecutions or these hardships into their lives. It is kind of just the season in which they're living. They're living a life that is contrary to the culture around them. And as a byproduct of that, it will rock the status quo of the establishment. But in the midst of that, as the trials and the opposition to the way in which God's people live comes, when it comes to them, to know that in this opposition, in the midst of these trials and in the midst of these hardships, that God's grace and peace, as they lean into him, will not only sustain them, but actually deepen or grow their faith. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Think of faith as a muscle. I don't know if you work out. As you can tell, I don't really work out. Um, but think of faith as a muscle that has to be exercised in order to be strengthened. You know, we often hear in the church world all these challenges or encouragements to grow in our faith and to be mature and to uh, get stronger in the Lord. But we want that without having to endure the hardships and trials that life brings us. We want our faith to help us escape those things. We don't want to go through difficult times. Even in our culture, set aside the spiritual for a moment. Within our culture, pain and suffering are not things that people pursue and want. They do everything that they can to avoid it. Good, because we view within our culture that any type of suffering or loss is bad and that only blessing and prosperity are good. But the Christian faith understands that the world does not work in that manner. But it's through those difficulties and through those hard seasons in our lives, and even to the point of persecution in which this church was specifically facing, it's in those moments in which we grow, in which we're stretched. This is how God proves whether or not our faith is genuine or true to him. Is our faith there when we need it? It's easy to live our lives faithfully when everything is going smoothly. But it's in the challenge and in the face of hardship, trials, and tribulations in which our faith is proved. 1 Thessalonians 3.10, just back a book, um, Paul talks about that he has been praying for this particular church. He prays that their faith would not only grow, but that their love would abound. And so we see him at the very beginning of this letter acknowledge that this is what's taking place. And there's this direct correlation that Paul's trying to point out between a growing faith and a growing love for others that is produced through trials. At the very beginning of our passage, again, I want to reflect back on that. It says, right, he says, we ought to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. He goes on and says, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you're enduring. And there's this connection that Paul wants the Thessalonians to understand, and he wants us to understand that in this season of trial or persecution that we might find ourselves, not only is our faith growing as we lean into God, but it is a direct correlation to as our faith grows that our love for others will be seen. 
And I, you could almost argue that one won't happen without the other. You won't be growing in your faith. Your faith won't be deepen, deepening or maturing without it also uh, uh, expressing itself in love towards other people. Essentially, so as your faith grows, that's, look, view it as though you're drawing closer to God. But also in the same manner, God has called us to draw closer to each other. And so as you mature or as you grow in your faith towards God, and, and think of faith as not just belief, but it's a, actual a trust that you're living your life by. That it moves beyond just an intellectual assent to understanding Jesus as God and Lord, but even more so that it's the way that you are now conducting your day to day. How you choose to live and make decisions and how you choose to treat people whether they're your loved ones or not. The growing and the maturing of our faith and our love for God will, as, uh, in a direct correlation, cause us to grow and mature in our love for other people. Now, when most of us talk about growing our faith, we typically use language that conveys the idea as faith being most, mostly a commodity, something that we can acquire through human effort. If I read my Bible a little bit more often, or if I can pray a little longer today than I did yesterday, I will have more faith. We buy into this deception that doing the right thing will give us more faith, which will enable us to do more right things for God. When the scriptures speak to us growing in our faith, it is more often about shedding things than adding things to our lives. They speak to principles such as dying to ourself and laying down one's life for Christ. We want something to do in order to make our faith stronger. And what Christ is calling his church to is to set apart our lives, not by what we do, but by what we, what we get rid of. Not those things that we add, but those things that we get rid of. God has called us to be a people that are solely committed to him. And it isn't about adding things that make us closer to God, but it's about what is God asking us to let go of in our lives. And, and it's all rooted in this one word, control. We love to control our lives. And what Christ has called his people to is a life of trust Trust that he knows best and that he's calling us to live the best life. And that happens as we understand that things, as much as we can control them, we really can't control everything. Life happens. Circumstances happen, both good and bad. And they're ultimately beyond our control. We can do all the right things, as we talked about earlier, and bad can happen to us. Persecution can happen to us. Loss can happen to us. It will. And the longer you live, you will see this cycle continue in your life. And what holds us to this life is a life that leans in to Jesus and trusting that his way is better than my way. Letting go of control and allowing God to be God. This is why the early church's proclamation was Jesus is Lord. This is a significant thing because in addition to the title of king or ruler that Caesar had, he was also called Lord. I don't know if you knew this or not. It, it was part of the culture today. Caesar is Lord. That he was the master, that he was the one that we looked to to, to, to provide protection for us and, and provision for us. He was the one that was expanding our wealth and our, and our goodness. And, and this was what would be considered a good Roman citizen that would declare Caesar is Lord. And so here comes this Jewish subcult of believers in Jesus that start declaring that he truly is the Lord. That he is the one that we look to 
in our lives. That he is the one that we say will direct our steps and carry us through both prosperous seasons as well as seasons of loss and grief. One of those byproducts I want to just look at today is just very briefly, and then we're going to kind of move to a close, is this idea of love and how God has called us to express our love for him and love for others. Now, we have this tendency in our culture as well to romanticize everything about love. It becomes feelings of emotion and passion, and those are all aspects or parts of love, but that truly isn't at the core of what the scriptures speak of when they talk about this idea of love. Um, there's this guy, I don't know if you've heard of, anybody heard of C.S. Lewis before? Anybody? All right. Okay, there's a few. Some smiles even good, too. All right. Whew. All right. I love what, what C.S. Lewis has. He wrote a book called The Four Loves, and uh, he calls it a selfless love that is, com- uh, that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. The love that God calls you and I to, his church to, his people to, is a selfless love. Most of the love within our culture is about pleasing self and turned inward, about even self-love. And I'm not telling you self-hatred is the way of Christ, but what I'm helping us to understand is that the love that God has given us is a selfless love. The love that is modeled by Christ is a selfless love. Christ's motivation for all that he said and did was people. It was outward. It was directed at the benefit of others and even to his own loss or detriment did he love people. And this is the love that God calls his church to continue in. This is the way that Christ lived, and this is the way that his church will live. Passionately committed to the well-being of others. It's a love that was modeled by Christ, and it's a love that he calls us to live out. And as we deepen in our, our relationship with God through these trials, as, as our faith grows, as we're strengthened, because what happens as we endure these seasons, because guess what? They are seasons. And just like, now I know I've, I've learned something by living in Kentucky. There are actual seasons out there. You know, growing up in Los Angeles, I thought it was eternal spring and summer. That was just how I perceived life. But outside of this beautiful place to live, there are actual seasons where things will turn. In, in the fall right now, it's just begun in, in Kentucky. And if you go a little farther north, you can see that it's been going on for a while. But the leaves begin to turn, and then they, they change these beautiful colors, and then they fall off the trees. And then they move into the season of winter and death. Again, I love this imagery because it, it really correlates to, to the seasons of our life. There are seasons where we have to have shedding, right? Like the, the leaves of our life or the things of our life will dry up and fall off. And we move into these seasons of death and loss. And we, again, we don't want those things. But it's in those seasons. If you don't have winter, you can't have spring. If you don't have seasons of loss and hardship, you can't have seasons of growth and maturity. And so whatever season you find yourself in today, I want to encourage you to embrace that season If you're in a season of loss, understand, like we all go through seasons of loss. It's so vital to understand to our maturity that in seasons of loss, we relearn the reality that we have limits. There is a limit to our control. There is a limit to our influence. There is a limit to all that we can say and do. And we are called in whatever season of life we find ourselves, whether it's a season of trial and persecution or a season of blessing and prosperity, we are called to remain faithful to the God who saved us. 
We are called to lean into his wisdom and to his ways. And if you don't know how to do that, I'm going to give you a practical example from our, from our passage. And I want to call Jackie and, the, uh, and Topher up as we move to our time of worship here. That direct correlation to our love and our maturity of God is, a, is our love towards others. If you don't know how to lean into God in the season that you're in right now, it's very practical and it's very simple. As I want you to start loving other people. There are people in your life that are easy to love. And so, uh, you know, that, that'll be an easy one. But there are people in our lives that are challenging to love. They're difficult to love because they don't live the way that we live or they don't have the values that we have or they just might be annoying. Let's be honest. There are a lot of annoying people in the world. And if you don't know any annoying people, it's probably because you're the annoying one. But begin by loving others right now there's somebody that you might even have come to your mind as we're sitting here this very moment that is a challenge to love and i want you just to find a way this week to express your love towards that person that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to have strong emotions right right how did we define love but like this selfless desire to see others thrive for their well-being how can you make their life better and guess what? Like Christ, it might cost you something. Pride, money, I don't know. You might need to do a good deed for them. I don't know how you can express that love towards that person. But make the effort to live like Jesus this week. When you do that, see, that's exactly what strengthens your faith, is you're saying, this doesn't make sense, or it's not how the world operates. You don't love your enemies. You don't love those people that annoy you. You avoid them at best. People are considered good people when we annoy those people that bother us, right? Like if I can just annoy that person, I can live a good life and, and do all the things that I wanna do. But Christ calls us to interact with the world that we live in, not to avoid it, not to hide. He calls us to engage these people. And so think today how you might express love towards those in your life that bother you. Maybe it's a boss, a coworker, a neighbor, the person that checks you out at the grocery store. I don't know. But find a way today to commit to show Christ's love to them. Not emotions, right? Your emotions will follow. This is the cool thing that God does in us. As we're obedient to the way of Christ, the emotions will follow. So we actually might start to have feelings for these people in a positive way. But what's more important than having those feelings is letting the way of Christ dictate how I treat them. This is growing in the love for others that he's called us to. Now, it begins primarily amongst the people of God. So there's people in this room today that you can express love to. But the love of God moves beyond just the people of God, right? We're carriers and ambassadors of this love. And so we're called not just to love each other. That's great. Jesus said even the pagans can do that. But we're called to move beyond the way that this world operates and to love others that annoy us, that bother us, that we don't even like. And as we show Christ's love to them, we, we, we pursue their interests above even our own, Jesus will be glorified. Your faith will be strengthened. And through this, you will have the same characteristic that these Thessalonians had. You will be able to endure trials and even persecution. When you live the way of Jesus, God gives you his spirit. He gives you his strength to endure the season that you're going in so that you can be at peace and have grace in the most difficult time of your life. Because we live by the principles of the kingdom of God. We don't live by the principles and the values of this world. We have chosen the Jesus way. 
This is the way that we walk in, to love our enemies as we love ourselves, to walk humbly, not with pride and arrogance, but with humility, because we recognize how much Christ has shown his love towards us. We recognize that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that shifts the perspective that we have towards other people. Because the same way that those people might annoy us or bother us or offend us, our lives were like that before Christ. We offended God with the choices that we made and the way that we treated other people and maybe even the way that we treated ourselves. But Christ has called us to a better way, to a way of love that is through obedience. So if you stand with me this morning, I'm going to pray for you and with you. Um, and um, Jackie's going to lead us. And uh, is it two more songs, Jackie? Just the one. Well, we'll, we'll just kind of let it happen. Um, and I want you just to respond to the Lord today and um, allow him to encourage you. If, you. if you want prayer today, I'm just going to hang out over here and I'll be happy to pray with you in whatever capacity. Do what you need to do today. But I'm just going to pray over every one of us this, this morning that we walk out of here today thinking of ways in which we can express this love towards other people. Amen? Lord, we love you. We thank you um, because Christ has come. That our lives were offensive and stinky and annoying to you, yet you loved us because of your grace. Not anything that we did to deserve your love and your forgiveness, but it's driven by who you are. And so as your people, people that identify as your followers, today we choose your way over the ways of this world. We choose the path of love. And Lord, in that, I pray that our faith will be strengthened as we choose your ways. And Lord, as we endure, whether it's right now or in the future, the season of trial and hardship, that Lord, that our strength would not be of our own, but it would be solely in you. I pray a blessing upon all of us today, Lord, that we would walk with the perspective of what Christ has done for us so that we may do it for others. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.